It's a joy, really, to be going through one of these Gospels, isn't it? To see what the Lord Jesus did and what he said and what he taught and so forth. We get to see and focus on an eyewitness account of his life. And in this particular account, Mark, he just jumps straight into the action. That's his style. Um, He begins by telling us about the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist. John had a ministry of preparation. He was getting people ready to meet the Savior. And he was telling them this whole time, there is one coming after me who is so much greater than I am that I am not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. And he says, when he comes, he's going to do for you much more than I am able to do because I baptize you with water, he says, but he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Mark jumps straight from there right into the baptism of Jesus when Jesus came on the scene. We went over that. And then right into the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness or his testing in the wilderness. So in other words, we're just jumping right into the, to the ministry of Jesus when Jesus was around the age of 30. That's where we're at. By the way, I always like to remind you, if you missed any of the sermons in this series... They're on our church website for you. Anytime you want to catch up, there's content there. And then if you're a podcasting person, you like listening to podcasts, we're on pretty much every podcasting platform. Just search for Jackson Bible Church Podcast. That has all the most recent sermons. And I don't know about you, but I've found that driving time and folding clothes time or any other mindless chore is unredeemed time. Pop some headphones in, put your phone, turn your computer on, whatever you got, and listen to sermons that you've missed or other good Christian resources. That's one way you saturate your mind with good material for your own sanctification. Other generations were not able to do that, right? Didn't have the internet. Now we have the internet and podcasting and all these resources We have zero excuses, don't we? So I just encourage you, take advantage of all those resources out there. And if you need some recommendations, like, that sounds great, Isaac. I don't know what to listen to. I'll I'll be glad to help. Just come to me. We'll talk about that. So today, let's read together Mark 1, 14 and 15. The Word of God says, Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the word of God today. Now we could focus on many different things in this text. You could preach a number of different helpful sermons, I think, on this one text. But I've chosen to look at it this way for this morning. We're going to focus on the message, as you see up there, the message of Jesus. Jesus had a message to preach everywhere he went. There was something that he wanted people to know. It was important 
to him. So let's examine what it is here. What, let's examine what he says. Before we get into the actual words that Jesus was saying, let's just look briefly at Mark's words kind of leading up to that. He sets the time frame first for Jesus' ministry to Galilee here. He says, after John the Baptist was arrested. That's the time frame we're looking at. And we know from other places in Scripture that King Herod arrested John and put him into prison. Matthew 14 records it for us. Um, and the reason for that imprisonment was because John was preaching against Herod's mess, excuse me, Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. And John kept telling King Herod that it was not lawful for her for him to marry her. And of course, if you've read it, you know the sickening tale, really. Herod puts John in prison, basically so he'll just shut up and quit bad-mouthing his unlawful marriage. And one day, Herod's unlawful wife's daughter comes in and dances before the court and pleases all the onlookers there so much that King Herod feels like a big shot in that moment. And he says, in front of everybody, I will give you whatever you want, you just name it. And she goes back to her mother and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And her mother thinks to herself, Ah, here's my chance to permanently silence that wilderness weirdo preacher, John the Baptist, who keeps making me look bad in my marriage to the king. So, my daughter... Go tell the king that you want John's head on a platter. So that's what she does. And Herod immediately feels bad because honestly he didn't want to kill John. But so that he wouldn't look like a liar and a wimp, he follows through with his horrible promise to give her whatever she asks and he sends the executioner to John's cell and he gives this lady, John the Baptist, head. Such a distasteful end to a godly man's life, isn't it? It just reminds me, by the way, that we're not promised a glory-filled, beautiful death, are we? It's an attractive thought in most of our minds to die in some kind of honorable way for the Lord, but John's death reminds us that it might not be glamorous, it might not even be super meaningful, humanly speaking. John the Baptist was a faithful man. Jesus commended him greatly in Matthew 11, and yet, in the sovereign plan of God, John was killed by an evil king because a dancing girl pleased his court and the girl's mother wanted him dead. It just seems so meaningless, right? So I guess one moral of the story is just be faithful and be prepared to be treated very badly in this world. That's one moral. The glory does not come in this lifetime. It comes in the next. So there's the time frame. It's after John had been put into prison by Herod. 
And then Mark gives us the location of these things. He said Jesus came into Galilee. Now the other gospels, they talk about parts of Jesus' ministry that came before this in Judea, his Judean ministry. But Mark just chooses, there's not a conflict between Mark and the other gospels. It's just that Mark chooses not to write about that and he skips ahead to Jesus' ministry into Galilee. Okay, So what does this ministry consist of? Well, Jesus does and says many things, but here's what Mark says Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming the gospel of God. Literally, it means he was preaching or announcing or heralding God's good news. What was the good news? Well, it was exactly what John the Baptist had been proclaiming. The news that God's chosen one, the Messiah, was here. God keeps his promises, right? He's coming to rescue you. And we might add, and he's not coming to rescue you in the way that you think because they thought he was going to be a political savior or a military savior. But he came to rescue them from something far greater. He came to rescue them from sin. So with all that said, let's look at what Jesus was actually saying as he preached around Galilee and elsewhere. What was the actual message? Here it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I don't think we're meant to understand this as that's all he said. I don't think he stood up and said that one sentence and said, thank you, that's all I have, and, and sat down. He no doubt elaborated and expanded upon these things. But Mark tells us this was his preaching. So let's break that down into kind of four segments and just try to learn from it, okay? So number one, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. I don't know if my slide's going to go forward there, but thank you, Miss Denise, for the help back there. The time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Think of it this way. We have a little Google device in our kitchen, and it has a little screen on it, and when we're cooking something, without having to do a whole lot, we'll say, set a timer for 18 minutes. 18 minutes pops up on the screen. It starts counting down, and when it's done, it'll beep, and we know cooking's done. Keeps track of our cooking time for us. So just picture in your mind, in this case, like a divine timer. Okay, ticking away only in the sovereign mind of God, counting down the years of humanity all throughout history, but counting down to what? It was the countdown to this, Jesus' arrival on the scene of humanity. On the scene of redemptive history. In the plot of the story, we might say this is the best part. This is it. So when the timer struck zero, 
God's divine timing was fulfilled and Jesus' ministry began. The Savior is on the scene. Jesus is in the house, we might say. And he's at work preaching and teaching and healing and helping and serving and ultimately saving sinners. We still mark time by this man's life. Even in the non-Christian world, B.C., before Christ. Sometimes it's changed to B.C.E. to mean before the common era, to take Christ's name out of it. But that doesn't change the fact that the event that it's marking is the life of Jesus still. So even if they want to get rid of the name and the abbreviation, this is the man who split time by his coming. Literally everything had been working up to this time. And I found this to be interested, or interesting in my preparation. The word that Mark uses for time here is a unique one. It doesn't come across as forcefully in English as it does in the original language. The word is kairos. In the Greek language, there's two different words that are translated into the English word time. One is chronos or chronos, we might say, which means like the passing of time. And then kairos, which refers to a moment of time where something very specific or significant happens. Here's what R.C. Sproul says. We do not have corresponding distinctions in the English language for chronos and kairos. The closest English words are these, historical and historic. Everything that takes place in space and time is historical, but not everything that takes place is historic. You follow? Mark uses the words that, or he uses the word that basically means historic here. So this, mark, this is marking a significant, historic, epic event. That's what Jesus was saying. This is what the Lord's people had been waiting for. This is what human history had been moving towards for many, many years. I love what the old man Simeon said in Luke chapter 2. Do you remember him? Joseph and Mary take their young baby, Jesus, they travel to Jerusalem and they are going to present their sacrifice after Jesus was born like it was stipulated in the law of Moses. And it says there there was a man named Simeon who was a righteous man and it says he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. That means he was waiting on the comfort of Israel or he was waiting on the encouragement of Israel. He's talking about the Messiah. And then later on, he gets to hold Jesus in his arms. And he says, and he prays, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Here he is. He's laying in my arms. 
That's Luke 2, 29 to 30. Simeon was looking into the eyes of salvation incarnate. Isn't that amazing? So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, it essentially means what Simeon said. Salvation is here. On a little sort of side note or separate note, another thing that I think of when I read this phrase, the time is fulfilled, is this. Christianity is a religion based on actual history. You ever thought about that? It's based around actual events in history that historians record elsewhere in addition to these eyewitness accounts of Scripture. In other words, you can think of it this way. Christianity is the most falsifiable religion that there is. The most falsifiable. In other words, if the events of Scripture didn't happen, if they're just made up, and if it could be proven that they were false, then the Christian faith is done for, right? Just prove, for instance, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the whole faith is done in. That's exactly what Paul says in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, right? If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then our entire faith is vain and we, of all people, ought to be the most pitied. We should just eat and drink and be merry because this whole Christian thing is a sham and tomorrow we die. Christianity is falsifiable because it's rooted in history. In other words, in Scripture, there are names of Caesars and Herods and places and cities and events that happened in actual history. And evidence for them, in many cases, has actually been dug up by archaeologists. So when you think about that, and then you come over here and you think about, okay, are all religions like that? No, they're not. Think about this. Most other religions are not historic. They are not based in history. And so, therefore, they are not falsifiable. They might be based around a particular vision that a person had or something like that. For instance, Mormonism is based around a vision that Joseph Smith supposedly had from an angel named Moroni. And it can't be falsified because it's based on one guy's subjective experience. You just have to trust that he's telling the truth, that this actually happened, that he actually heard what he said he heard. It's not falsifiable. Christianity is not like that. It is based in history with no particular person's vision or subjective experience at the crucial joint. There are things that multiple eyewitnesses saw. For instance, over 500 people at once saw Jesus in his resurrected body, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. So the crucial events that form the basis of our faith are not based around just one guy's experience who may have had some questionable mental stability. No. On the contrary, it's based around the eyewitness accounts of multitudes of people. 
So I hope that encourages you to think about that. Our faith is based in history. Jesus was a real person who lived in the first century. People interacted with him. They touched him. They heard him. They saw him do amazing things. And the multitude of witnesses say the same thing about him. And if Christianity were false, it would have died centuries ago. But here it stands. And here the Bible stands, unscathed by scoffers and skeptics throughout many, many years of human history. I love that poem that my dad used to quote about the anvil. You ever seen a blacksmith do his work? Pretty neat. But you know, if you've seen him work, he might go through hundreds of hammers because they break. But guess what doesn't break? The anvil that he's banging on. The anvil lasts through everything. And the little two-line, the little couplet that my dad used to quote is, Hammer away, ye hostile hands. Men's hammers break, God's anvil stands. That's true, isn't it? I love that. God's word stands forever. It has stood the test of time, even against the harshest critics and their hostility and all their efforts to end it. They end up breaking and passing off the scene while God's word continues on. Amen. So Jesus says first, the time is fulfilled. Next, what does he say? He says this. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's actually quite a subject if you do a little study on that phrase in the Bible. But if we were just going to give a really simple, short definition of it, it's this. Jesus' rule on earth. Jesus' rule on earth. And that phrase, though, as I said, is, is multifaceted. And there's no doubt a future aspect to it that has not happened yet. Because he's ruling now, yes. But in the future, the kingdom will be fully realized in a way that it has not been up until that point. And at that time, the prophecy of Isaiah will be fulfilled and many other prophecies but here's just one that says this about Christ's kingdom Isaiah 9 7 of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, we don't yet experience the fullness of Christ's kingdom that will only come about at his second coming, but we do experience a taste of it now, don't we? Doesn't Christ rule in his people's hearts right now? Hasn't God established his ambassadors on this earth and his embassies on this earth? Each local church is like an embassy for the kingdom of God. Jonathan Lehman 
calls them kingdom outposts. That's what he calls churches. I like that. All of that is included in this concept of the kingdom of God. But I think Jesus is saying here in Mark, the kingdom is brought near because I, the Savior, have come near to you. I'm here. The king was here. The people could literally reach out and touch him. The Messiah was on the scene. And you'll also see in the Gospels, if you read the other Gospels, that Jesus taught that present yet future dimension of the kingdom that we were just talking about. Uh, One man said, to, to kind of sum up that concept, the kingdom has been inaugurated through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but awaits consummation in the future. I think that's a good way of putting it. Here's an interesting thought related to um, to the kingdom of God. When we think about what the Bible teaches about heaven, what do we think of? Well... For one, we think of a place that is free from sickness and suffering, right? That's one thing. Well, what does Jesus do in his earthly ministry? He heals people of their sicknesses. What else do we think of regarding heaven? Well, it's a place without evil. Well, what does Jesus do to the evil forces during his earthly ministry? He cast them out. He cast out demons like it's nothing with a word, it says. What else? Well, heaven has no sin in it. Well, what does Jesus do in his earthly kingdom? He goes around forgiving people of their sins. So what I'm getting at is, in a sense, as Jesus travels around from here to there and does all these things, it's like a heavenly bubble is traveling with him. Wherever he goes, a slice of heaven goes with him. Isn't that neat? It's just another way of saying, though, that... It's another way of saying what he said when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. With Jesus came the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is among you right now when Jesus was among them. So... There's something of the first two phrases that Mark says Jesus was preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Then we get to the last two things. He says, number three, repent. Repent. Just like John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance, so was Jesus. And really, this is an amazing contrast to the modern day ideas of Jesus, isn't it? It is interesting having conversations about Jesus with certain humanist individuals, maybe. You'll catch them on a news program every once in a while talking about Jesus. They'll usually want to lecture Christians about what Jesus actually said or what he actually did as if we've had it wrong for all these years. And what you most often hear from them are things like, 
Well, Jesus was all about helping the poor and loving people and befriending the outcast and socializing with the worst of society and setting the example of kindness and tolerance and all these things, a host of other things they would say, but they seem to love Jesus' moral example, at least their idea of it, and whatever Jesus said is great if it lines up with their values already, or at least can it be massaged into meaning what they already believe. And if he didn't say something about a specific situation, well, Jesus was apparently morally neutral on it or just flat out okay with it. These are the type of things that we hear about Jesus in the world, in the culture. There's a host of problems with that kind of thinking, but my point is, for now, you know what they don't often talk about? These words of Jesus. Mark says, Jesus was going around preaching and saying, repent. Repent means to have a change of mind about your sin to the point that you turn from it. And this isn't a one-off from Jesus that Mark throws in and it's never mentioned again in Scripture. No, Jesus was constantly telling people to repent. And that is just in stark contrast to the made-up Jesus Jr. of the secularists or even in some of the mainline liberal denominations nowadays. Jesus is almost more about what he didn't say than what he did say in some circles. But let me just give you a quick sampling of Jesus' repeated teaching on repentance. Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus pronounces woes on several cities. He's pronouncing severe judgment on these cities. And it says the reason he was doing that is because, quote, they did not repent. In Luke 5:32 he said, "I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance." In Luke 15, Jesus tells several parables. He tells the one about the lost sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the lost son. We often call that the lost son, the prodigal son. Um, But he says in verse 7 of that chapter, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. So Jesus says, heaven rejoices. Not when a sinner finds himself or finds herself and is free to express themselves. That is not when heaven rejoices. Rather, they rejoice in heaven when a sinner repents. The culture tells us, just be yourself. Follow your heart. If you do that, guess what? We'll rejoice with you. We'll promote you. We'll celebrate you. 
However you want to live, you just do you, be you. Meanwhile, Jesus says heaven celebrates, rejoices when a sinner repents of their sin. We don't hear much celebration on earth, at least in the culture at large, when someone repents over a sin. They would rather us celebrate who we think we are rather than admit that we're sinful and need to change. But in heaven, where it really matters, in the presence of God, there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And that's what Jesus went around preaching, a message of repentance. Um, We often hear things like, God loves you just the way that you are. As if, when we come to Him, um, He's going to stroke our egos and affirm us in whatever choices we have made. But that's not how Jesus loves. Jesus loves us so much that He won't leave us like we came. We surely can and should come to him as we are. How else are we going to come? We can't change ourselves. Jeremiah said, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? The implication is you can't change yourself. God has to change you. So yes, you come as you are. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we can come to God. But it's not because we're We're perfect like we are, but because we don't have the power to come any other way. We just come as we are. But my point is, though, when we do come as we are, he loves us enough not to leave us like we are. He transforms us. And turning from our sin, repentance, is that initial and yet ongoing thing that we do and say in our hearts I am done with my sin. I see it for what it is. I see what God says about it, and I agree with him, and I want something better. I want Christ. And I think, here's what we see today. We see the eroding away of the definition of sin don't we? And that's not surprising. That's an actually genius move by the powers of darkness, isn't it? It won't work, ultimately, because we know who has the victory. But in the short run, it's genius, and it's what we should expect from the enemy. Think about it. If one element of the message of the gospel, straight from Jesus' lips, is to repent of our sin then you can be sure the enemy is going to do whatever he can to prevent people from repenting, isn't he? And the one way that he does it is to convince them that their sin really isn't sin. And if it's not sin, then you don't have to repent of it, right? Maybe you could even celebrate it. 
I know this is hard stuff is what our culture's going through. And we see that with a host of issues today. We see it with homosexuality. We see it with gender issues. We see the ensuing confusion with what male and female even is. We see it with sexuality in general, really. People championing, champion, championing just about any sexual thing you can think of. We see it with the issue of abortion. One of the biggest killers of human beings is abortion. And sadly, I've seen more people lamenting that recent Supreme Court decision than just about anything in recent history. It is so sad to me. And many Christians have bought the culture's definition of sin instead of God's definition. And when society convinces itself that sin is not really sin and that wrong is actually right and right's actually wrong, then repentance is impossible. That's why we as Christians, we cannot waver on these issues. I am not saying we have to be a jerk about these issues to people or instigate arguments or even talk about them 24-7 like it's our entire mission. We ought to be as winsome as possible, kind, treating everyone with dignity because they're made in the image of God. But what I'm saying is when the fight comes to our door, which it basically has, because it's being, oh, if you have small children, it's being thrown in your children's face from every corner of society, from school to TV. We just have to be vigilant, is what I'm saying. And I've sadly seen parents and grandparents just suddenly, just suddenly seemingly change their stance on the gender issue or the homosexuality issue simply because maybe one of their children or grandchildren came out as gay or transgender. And what's the most sad to me is when that happens, whether they realize it or not, they have essentially blocked their child or grandchild from repentance because they can't repent of something that they believe is not a sin and if we're there approving them in that, we're leading them astray in the worst possible way. God help us. And God help any of you if you're dealing with that currently in your family. Maybe you are, and I don't know all the situations. Or God help you if you ever have to deal with that in the future. May God help you to love that family member. Love them, don't abandon them, don't disown them. Love them forever till your dying breath. But never affirm something that God clearly calls a sin. Find loving ways the best you can to tell them the truth. Because any other thing sets up a barrier to their repentance. I remember the words, very sobering words of Jesus later on in this book that we're studying. In the ninth chapter of Mark, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him 
if he had a great millstone around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We cannot lead people astray. We cannot affirm sin. We cannot call evil good or good evil. We must speak the truth in love and pray that God would grant repentance, right? Never let the culture define what sin is. Never let your feelings decide what sin is. Never let your family or friends determine what sin is. We always have to come back to the authority of the Bible. What does God say sin is? God is the authority. So what I'm saying is, don't fight against Jesus' message of repentance by minimizing the very sins that he calls people to repent of. We could say much more there. We could say much more like how repentance is an ongoing thing for every Christian too. Repentance doesn't just happen at one moment when we're in the moment of salvation, right? It happens every day. Christians should be serial repenters. S-E-R-I-A-L, serial repenters. If there's sins that you and I have quit fighting, oh, that's a bad sign. Are there sins in your life that you're sort of okay with? Don't endanger yourself that way. Repent. Turn from those sins and God will help you overcome them. We're constantly sinning, so we should be constantly repenting. And God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us when we do. Amen. For now, we'll move on for the sake of time to the final point. Jesus lastly says, believe in the gospel. That's number four. And the word there for believe means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. It's the same root word actually for faith. For instance, in Romans 4, 5, faith and believing are actually equated with one another. Listen to it. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. They're the same thing. And Jesus preaches the, that twofold turning. You turn from sin, that's repentance, and you turn to Christ, that's believing, that's faith. And it's like one motion. That's why I'm doing this move here. It happens at the same time, in other words. So if you, if you think of sin over here, think of Christ over here. When you turn from sin, you're already turning to Christ. That's what Jesus says has to happen to enter the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. And the apostles preached the same thing. Um, Paul, for instance, when he's bidding farewell to those Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he summarizes to them what he taught them the whole time. And he says this. This is his summary of his own teaching throughout the, the time with them. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks 
of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, repentance and faith. Paul says his entire message was summarized in that. Repent and put your faith in Christ. We put our faith in Christ because he's the one who has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So it's not faith in some general sense like I have faith, like I'm just hoping in some vague thing. Of course not. It's, it's hoping in a person, believing in a person, putting your trust in a person. That's the type of faith and believing that it's talking about. When you, when you see what you are for the first time before God, a sinner, with zero chances of saving yourself, and then you see who Christ is, and you say, He is a perfect Savior, willing to save anybody who comes to Him then you trust what he says in his word because you believe him to be trustworthy and you believe that he'll do what he said he would do. And the Bible says that's how God makes us right with him. He says we're justified by faith, by believing in Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5 and verse 1. So God makes us right with him when we put our faith, our trust, our belief in Christ. When we quit trying to work to impress God and when we just throw ourselves on his mercy, that's when justification happens. You know, I was talking to some atheists this week online, some guys that I know, and one of them made the comment that he used to be a Christian. And this wasn't the main thrust of the conversation at the time, but kind of in an offhanded description of what Christians believe, this person said, Christians believe they need to be good in order to get to heaven. And I thought, no, that's exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. And I knew right then that he didn't understand the gospel at all, even though he would personally claim to have been a Christian in the past. Doing good things in order to make it to heaven is impossible. If it were possible, Christ would not have had to come. That's our whole problem. We can't do it ourselves. That's why Christ came. We're much more sinful than what that man was giving us credit for. We need a miracle. We need a savior. We need the kingdom of God to come down to earth and bring heaven to us in that way. Matt Smethurst, in one of the books I gave out a couple weeks ago, he says this, we couldn't get to God, so God came to us. I love that quote. And that's what Jesus came on the scene to do. He came to rescue us. He came to bring the kingdom to us. So don't accept a faulty Jesus Jr. is what I'm calling it. Sort of looks like Jesus, but it ain't him. Don't accept a faulty Jesus Jr. from anyone who would try to re-educate you on who Jesus was or what was important to him. What was important to Jesus was to rescue you from your sin. And what was important to Jesus was everything that Scripture taught. 
He wanted these first century people to see it, and he wants us 21st century people to see the same thing, that the time is fulfilled. He has come. He's brought the kingdom. It's been inaugurated. Now it's time to repent and believe in him for salvation. And if you've done that, I hope I'm preaching to mostly Christians today. If you've done that, praise the Lord. I hope this message has just helped bolster your faith and increased your thankfulness for what he's done. In other words, I'm trying to just fill up your praise tank is what I'm trying to do. But if you've never repented and put your trust in Christ, then I pray God would open up your eyes and your ears today. If you're listening or watching this, just hear what Jesus says straight from his mouth. Don't let other people try to tell you what they think Jesus thought was important. Here's what Jesus said was important. Repent and believe the gospel. And let's talk if you have questions. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these plain words in the book of Mark. Lord, help us not to fall prey to the prevailing thought of our day where sin is celebrated and righteousness is looked down upon or redefined in some way. Lord, help us to stand firm on your word, not like jerks or holier-than-thou types of people, but like people who just care about the truth and who care about people who are lost and dying due to their sin. May we just lovingly call sin, sin, and not set up barriers to people's repentance where there should be no barrier. Help us to also model repentance in our own lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son to carry out this plan of redemption so that when we do repent and believe, something very real happens. We are washed. We are cleansed. We are transformed. We are made new in your sight and without Jesus' coming, none of this would be possible. We would be lost and undone without God and without hope in this world. There wouldn't be much reason, Lord, to keep on going if it weren't for this glorious gospel. Thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. May we repeat it to ourselves and preach it to ourselves every day and then let the praises flow to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.